The scripture passage that I want to focus on today is from the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, commonly called Colossians. The first eight verses read this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Father God, I pray that you would give us that same kind of faith, hope, and love, a love that is driven from your love for us, and that also is rooted in the Spirit of God. Guide us in Jesus' name. There's a scene in Meet the Parents, that 2000 film from Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro, where Stiller's character, Greg Fokker, has come to visit his girlfriend's home for the first time, and he's asked to say grace before dinner. Being relatively unfamiliar with the concept, Greg leans on the best thought that comes to his mind. And in a very humorous scene, he starts reciting the lyrics to a song from Godspell. It's the song Day by Day, and he recited it more or less as a prayer. Now, probably many of you remember the lyrics to that song. It goes like this. Day by day, day by day, oh dear Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. Day by day by day by day by day. All right, so I have a question for you. Which is it? Is it a song or is Greg actually right that it was a prayer? Well, the song was written in 1971, yet the prayer that the song is based on is much older than that. Richard of Chichester was a 13th century scholar who taught at the University of Oxford in England and also in Paris. He was known for his vegetarian diet, for simplicity, and for his burning desire to know Christ. He eventually became the Bishop of Chichester. Near the end of his life, he wrote this prayer that he quoted daily and prayed on his own deathbed. Thanks be to you, my Lord Jesus, for all the benefits which you have given me, for all the pains and insults you have borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend, and brother, may I know you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. Richard's friends and followers continued to use this prayer for years afterward, even adding this phrase, day by day, th these three things I pray. That song, Day by Day, and Richard's prayer each include this grand desire, to see thee more clearly. That desire is the key thought behind what I want to talk to you about this morning. If I were to look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church, I would put it under this heading, getting clear on Jesus. It's one of the most important things that we can do in our lifetime, 
And yet, because there are new ideas that people seem to raise that cloud or muddy the picture that we have of Jesus, it's important that we constantly re-clarify and go back to the original to make sure that we are getting clear on Jesus. So what I want to talk to you about is the gospel of faith, hope, and love that brings us toward clarity in Jesus. Now, this comes from Paul's letter to the Colossian church. We know as Colossians. I want to talk to you first about the reason for the letter. Uh, the first reason is that Paul had some history with this group of people. In verse 7, he says, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Paul had not started the church that met in Colossae. During his two-year ministry in Ephesus, two men from Colossae had invited Paul. They were Epaphras and Philemon. And so one of those two men who had first told Paul about this gathering of people uh, is this fellow uh, Epaphras that he mentions again. Colossians and, and Ephesus were both located in the Lycus River Valley in western Turkey. Colossae was about 80 miles from Ephesus. So when Paul wrote this New Testament letter that he addressed to Philemon, he noted that the church met in his home, in Philemon's home, that is. So a vibrant, new, thriving church had emerged without Paul's help. And it appears that Paul had advised these two men, Epaphras and Philemon, acting as a mentor, so to speak. And it also seems natural that they reached out to Paul when they got in trouble or they needed advice or help. The Colossian church was dealing with the problem, and the problem had to do with false teachers. The problem came from false teachers who were promoting an early form of something known as Gnosticism. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word for knowledge, and they claimed that they had a higher knowledge that was beyond Christian teaching. They taught that people who adopted Gnosticism were in the know and everybody else was out. Here are some of the things that the Gnostics taught. Their teaching held that the spiritual realm was pure, but that all matter, and therefore the world that we live in, was completely evil. And there was a dualistic way that they viewed everything. Thus, God could not have created the earth, so there must be some lower spiritual being who was truly the creator of the earth. This being would have, had, have been several levels lower than God. And if Jesus was God's son, he could not have had a human body because the body was seen as evil. This led to Gnostic ideas that Jesus was like ghost-like phantom, that he had nothing to do with the creation, and that the incarnation of Jesus, in other words, the taking on of real human flesh, was not real, and ultimately that Christ was not enough for our needs. In Gnostic teaching, people taught that they could start with Jesus and then, then, then work their way up to God through beings that were higher than Jesus and would take them to sources of greater and greater knowledge, and finally they would get to God. These other spiritual beings or emanations between Jesus and God were what they claimed to know more about. And people could work their way through a system of ascetic disciplines that were borrowed from Jewish legalism, astrology, Eastern mysticism, and a little bit of Christianity. This is why Epaphras and Philemon were writing to Paul and seeking Paul's help. This is why Paul writes this letter. Paul shared their concern for the people of Colossae. These early Christians were grappling with the message of Gnosticism that was spreading throughout their territory and undermining the faith of some who were very, very new to experiencing Jesus in their church. They were being insulted as lowly Christians who believed in a Jesus who was not enough. So there are three 
principles that Paul stresses then in this opening section of the letter in answering their challenges. The first is our identity in Christ. So in the beginning of chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father. First, Paul stresses his authority as an apostle. Often, Paul identified himself as a servant of Christ and took the lowly position of how he submits to Christ. But here, Paul asserts his role as an apostle in contrast to the false teachers. In other words, he's been commissioned directly by Jesus himself. He's reminding us of that experience on the Damascus Road where Jesus met Paul and called him directly to serve him in painful ways. Next, Paul reminds the people of the church that they are holy people. They are set apart by God. Third, Paul reminds them that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is an essential bond between Christ followers all around the world. This phrase, in Christ, is something that Paul will emphasize throughout this letter. Paul was letting them know that to be in Christ is actually enough. That's our goal, to remain in Christ, in Jesus. To be in Christ is to partake of one of the greatest mysteries that could ever exist. Being in Christ is reason enough to celebrate. And then fourth, Paul sends this greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Notice that Paul starts with grace, not peace. Our experience of peace rises through God's empowering grace. Kent Hughes, who was the pastor of the church I went to in college, wrote this, among the tragedies of our time is humanity. Humanity's pursuit of personal peace apart from God's enabling grace. Let me say that again. Among the tragedies of our time is humanity's pursuit of personal peace apart from God's enabling grace. Sinners find peace as a result of experiencing God's grace, and this is a cause for rejoicing. So the proper greeting is grace and peace to you from God our Father. Second, Paul reminds them of the evidence of faith, love, and hope. In verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Notice how Paul launches into this prayer of thanksgiving. Paul did not immediately address the theological problem or concern of Gnosticism. He let them know that his first response was to bring them to God in prayer. We live in a day when many people, maybe even most people, actually scoff at prayer. Doing so while invoking James 2.17, that a faith that is not accompanied by works is dead faith. Watch what happens. Watch when that happens in our day. It doesn't mean that the person who does this is not a Christian. We don't get to make that call. But those cries misapply James 2.17. James is arguing that our faith needs to be backed up by our sweat and hard work, but James never ever devalues the role of prayer. And yet you will find people saying, I want to stop hearing about all of these wishful thoughts and prayers that people are having. Just do something. Prayer is doing something in Paul's mind. Then Paul reminds them of the evidence of the big three, faith, hope, and love. New Testament scholars refer to faith, hope, and love as apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. Where all three are present, this is evidence of real Christianity. 
None of these three can be manufactured. All three, faith, hope, and love, come from God. For faith to be effective, it must be placed in Christ as God's solution to our need for grace. Bible translator John Patton notes that faith is, quote, to lean your whole weight upon. In other words, that we, we lean our whole weight upon Christ. Love for other brothers and sisters in Christ is the next sign of authentic Christianity. Paul specifically notes that these Colossian Christians were known for their love for all of God's people. Another translation says, the love you have for all the saints. Loving God must always be matched with loving our neighbors. In his powerful book, Born Again, Chuck Colson told of one of his first experiences of this kind of love. Colson had been led to faith by Raytheon CEO Tom Phillips as the Watergate mess was about to break. But as a new Christian, his faith was severely tested and some family circumstances led to great discouragement. Colson had been sentenced and sent to prison and couldn't personally respond to some of these concerns. However, he'd been adopted by a group of Christians in Washington, which included Senators Mark Hatfield, Senator Hughes, and Senator Al Quie, who were praying for him. Senator Al Quie, who was from Minnesota, discovered an old law that allowed an innocent man to serve a prison cell for another. And Quie actually volunteered to serve the remainder of Colson's term. Colson turned that offer down, but later he wrote that even while he was in prison, he had experienced this love for all the saints in Quee's gesture. Finally, Paul brought up their hope. This is the third part of that powerful trio, faith, love, and hope. But notice how Paul brings hope up last among the three. This is because Paul sees faith and love springing from their hope. He writes of hope stored up for you in heaven. As pagans, the Colossians had been without hope in the world. Then Epaphras and Philemon had brought them the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. And they'd started this new church and hope was rising through the congregation in that city. They experienced the joy of salvation and the hope of a home in heaven. So Paul reveals that faith and love grow larger and increased based on hope. And then he talks about the, the third feature the true gospel. And so in the end of verse five, he says, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Here, Paul mentions this phrase, the true message of the gospel. I have news for you. When we're talking about the authenticity of Christianity, this is always what we are seeking. What is the true message of the gospel? Why? He knew that the gospel, as handed down from Jesus to the apostles, was under attack in Colossae. The Gnostic teachers were telling the Christians there that the gospel was not enough that Jesus was not enough. The word gospel in English literally means good news. The good news is that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus conquered sin and death for us when he rose from the tomb, and that Jesus reigns on high at the right hand of God the Father. Now this gospel, he says, is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world. 
this gospel, not some other gospel, not a recreated gospel. This simple gospel that is focused on Jesus is the gospel that was beginning to change the world. And Paul reminded them of this growth so that they would know that they are not alone. New ideas will always come from those who are not satisfied with Jesus. Anytime you become discouraged by the growth of other religions, take a step back and look at how the gospel continues to spread around the world. For a hundred years or more, the United States seemed to be at the center of the gospel movement around the world. Not that the church in the U.S. is dying, but the center of the gospel movement has moved in recent years. Today, Asian, Latin American, and African Christians are at the center of the fastest growth of Christian faith. And some of these nations are sending missionaries to the United States. This should encourage us because the same gospel that we've been committed to has been spreading to other places a lot of times through the efforts of American missionaries. And in those places, the gospel has taken root and it is exploding and multiplying in powerful ways, just like it did in the centuries, in centuries ago here in the United States and just like it did in the early chapters of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. You and I can take heart that the gospel continues to spread around the world. So Paul adds that this was the same gospel that they had heard from Epaphras. He will go on to address their concerns by writing about the role of Jesus in God's work. The more clear we get about Jesus, the easier it is to recognize false teaching when it pops up. And the more we get clear about Jesus, the more we also realize that Jesus is enough. Here's the big idea. The gospel of faith, love, and hope is enough to lift us out of confusion and to lead us to rejoice. The gospel of faith, hope, and love is enough. It lifts us out of confusion and it leads us to rejoice. So I have a question for you. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you to lean your whole weight on him and trust that he really is the one that God sent and that his death and resurrection on the cross prove that death could not hold him, and that therefore he had the ability to do what he promised and take away the sins of the world. When we put our faith in Jesus, our sins are taken away and they are nailed to that cross forever. Are you leaning with your whole weight on Jesus? The gospel of faith, hope, and love is enough to lift us out of every confusion that comes and to give us more and more reasons to continue rejoicing. Let's pray. God, our Father, allow us to rest our whole weight on Jesus and to stand with the apostles of old, to stand with the faith of the disciples of Jesus and to believe in our hearts, to satisfy our minds and to declare to the world that Jesus is enough. Lord, I pray that you will help us to hold on to that faith and to live by the power that is behind it. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. God bless you.